Welcome to Science Stories. 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 All right, welcome to Science Stories. Today I'm really, really happy to announce that I have a great guest. Dr. Mitch Pryor is here. He's a research scientist and a lecturer for the Cockrell, is that how do you pronounce it? Cockrell. Cockrell, sorry. School of Engineer at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you for driving down to San Marcos. Absolutely no problem and good Friday to you, Mateo. Thank you. Um, Dr. Pryor led and conducted research in the area of robotics and automation in mechanical engineering, petroleum engineer, and nuclear engineer. He's also a co-founder of the Nuclear Robotics Group and the Drilling and Rig Automation Group, and both are inter interdisciplinary research efforts to deploy robots in hazardous, uncertain environments. And this leads me to, to the first question. Reading your work, I was surprised that people think we need robots to perform repetitive tasks like production line and, and, and stuff like that. But you actually bring up a really good point in, in, and it's that we also need robots for other kinds of tasks that are really complicated, such as disposal of explosives or handling hazardous material and deep sea observation or, or something re related to nuclear material, right? There's a, a, a there's a really good way they put that in the robotics industry. They talk about either the three Ds or the four Ds, uh, the dangerous, dull, drudgerous, and then some people add dirty. But if it falls into one of those four Ds, that's usually where you might find a good opportunity to deploy a robot. So I think I have to start asking you what is the difference between a machine and a robot? Okay. <laughs> it's a good question, and often let's start out with the fact that both machines and robots are things that interact with and can change the environment. It's not like a computer. When a robot or a machine does something, something out there actually physically changes. So the difference is often a machine is something that does the same thing over and over. A car might be a machine. It drives. Uh, uh, a machine on a factory floor that just does one thing puts caps on bottles that's a machine but a robot it can affect its environment and it's reprogrammable reprogrammable it can do many different tasks it could start out just like a human being working in one type of factory and then be reprogrammed to end up in a different type of factory all right can you think of an example off the top of your head of a machine that then became a robot of a machine that then became a robot um <clears throat> you know the a good example of that might be, you know, the, the conveyor belts at, say, a, a shipping factory place. Well, often someone will very carefully place the packages going down a conveyor line, like one at a time, one at a time, one at a time, so that the machine at the other end 
can handle it. They expect them to come in a certain box and in a certain place. It's not reprogrammable. But more recently, there's a company in San Antonio, Plus One Robotics, for example, that now you basically, just like you would in front of a human, you take all the packages and you just dump them into a big pile. And then the robot uses vision and intelligence to then move around and pick up the individual packages, no matter where they are. It's able to figure out which one's on top and then put it in the right conveyor belt to send it in the right direction. So that's a great example of of something where robots replaced machines. All right. Yeah, Yeah, thanks. Mm -hmm. Dr. Breyer, can you briefly explain what is the difference between teleoperation and um, supervised autonomy, that it's something that comes up when, when, when somebody reads your work? Yeah, so I mean, there's, there's two ways to think about it. Now here we're talking about robots that are not fully autonomous. They're not just doing tasks without a human in the loop. And so a lot of times, particularly when you talk about those dangerous tasks of those Ds, then you want the robot to, to go in and do something. And having the human in the loop like helping make the decisions, you basically are saying, we want the robot to go out there so a human doesn't have to, like near a radiation environment or uh, EOD in uh, Iraq or an army, you know, military setting. And in those cases, there's really two ways you could think about how the robot and the human interact. The first is you could make it where the robot feels like an extension of your own body. That's teleoperation. You try to put yourself in the place of the robot. You use joysticks to move its hands. And then maybe if the hands come into contact something, you might feel some feedback, like forces via something they call haptics. But in that sense, you are, the robot is your remote body. So you have to be full-time paying attention to what the robot does. full-time paying attention. And that's teleoperation. That's tele, remote, Mm -hmm. operate. that's great, but it, and they still do that a lot, but it, it, you're right. Like you just said, that itself can become very dull and drudgerous as you like micromanage every little thing the robot does. But what if instead that, that robot that's out there is instead of, it's like a, a rookie, but still an autonomous agent. So it's like if I was explaining to you for the first time how to do a task like welding, I'd say, all right, you're going to pick up the... Uh, the screwdriver, and then you're going to turn that bolt. And I trust that you as an agent can do those simple things. So if I can get where a robot may not understand how to do like the high level task, but I can direct it like through a set of simple tasks, that's supervised autonomy. It's more like looking over the shoulder of somebody who's new. And that means that the more you trust that person to do more of the task autonomously, the less you kind of have to pay attention. And that is probably the path from teleoperation to full autonomy. That's what uh, robotics is looking for yeah. right now. That's the direction it's moving towards. Yeah. Yeah. Because if we wait to get Wally, to use the example mm-hmm. you know, of a fully autonomous robot to go out and do something, it's that classic thing where, oh, we'll have that in 20 years, but mm-hmm. we will be saying that every year forever. Yeah. But if we have this idea that we can advance through supervised autonomy and then the robots start out close to teleoperation, but then we're slowly able to have them do more and more on their own, then they are helping us now and they can help us more efficiently going forward. And we can see us grow into autonomous systems as opposed to waiting for them. I'm definitely going to ask you about Wally later. Okay. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> he is my favorite robot. Yeah? Yeah. So I really like, um, when, when I really enjoyed reading your work, actually, like, to, honestly. And Something that was really 
curious is the task you ask a robot in order to to say it has high precision and you submitted robots to a test of n uh, threading a needle right yeah why why do you pick that task is it is it just an example of a high precision task or or that task has something special about it well it's interesting okay so go back to the teleoperation mm -hmm. idea and imagine trying to teach a robot in another room or across a field how to thread a needle and what you have is an xbox controller it doesn't sound fun at all no <clears throat> so the idea that that we came up with was that if these robots are going to be supervised autonomy and then they're going to do things like turn screws and put bolts in and things like that they need a level of precision and that level of precision now needs to be theirs right you know it's not like with the joysticks we can make it work but when we did this threading of the needle the idea was that in this supervised autonomy imagine i'm going to ask you to go into the garage and get something for me. Mm -hmm. The first time I might, I'm going to try not to use a gesture here because mm -hmm. I'm on radio, yeah. but I would, I would make a gesture and say, hey, can you go to the uh, garage? And the first thing you would know is that that gesture is implying that you are going to move many yards. You're going to move feet. And then later when I say you're over the workbench, I would say, all right, pick up the screwdriver. Mm -hmm. And I make a small gesture in the direction of the screwdriver. You understand that your hand is going to move a foot, mm -hmm. a foot and a half. But now I need you to put that screwdriver in a slot. Mm -hmm. Well, now you need to make a very precision thing. And when I make a gesture, my gesture is the same in each one of these three cases. I make the same gesture with my hand to move you feet. I make a gesture for you to move yards across to the garage. And then I make another gesture that you take when I point to the screw to make like a sub-millimeter motion. And so what we did a lot of work was, was how does a robot understand the scale of the task that the human is trying to direct them to do? And we came up with a way of using uh, a laser, uh, like, a, a, like your Xbox camera, mm -hmm. to read your hands and how they move. And then based on the context of what you put in with either a dial or with your voice, then that command or that gesture commands the robot to move either across a room, a few feet, or just less than a millimeter. And the dramatic demonstration that we did for that and became one of our more popular online videos, because that's always the game in robots these days. How many people can you get to watch your cool robot videos? Mm -hmm. Austin, Boston Dynamics does it best, we all know, uh, is uh, showing that that robot could thread a needle, that we could, through simple gestures, teach a robot to do that. That's amazing. Can you think of another task that it's super intuitive for humans, but it would be super challenging for a robot? <laughs> um, the examples that often I see people try to do with robots when they want to do contact tasks are usually relatively simple. You want to open a door. Well, the door is fixed on some hinges, so the radius is the same. And so you can kind of teach it that stuff or open a drawer. Once it grabs the um, handle, it can pull straight out. But we interact with lots of things where the thing that we're going to interact with isn't that. Like, take a door handle on a pickup. It's on, like, kind of those weird hinge linkages so that you and I, when we pull up on it, we just follow what is really a complex curve in space with our hand, and we do it without even thinking about it. But for a robot, that's hard, and it's hard for us to define. If I want the robot to open a door, 
I just give it a distance from the hinges and how many degrees to move. If I wanted to open a drawer, I just tell it how many f- inches to pull it out. If I wanted to open a door on, say, a pickup, which mm-hmm. the you know with a compact plex path to follow, now the math's getting complicated. We're getting into something that roboticists call screw theory and instantaneous twists and other other fun other things that have cooler names than the math behind them. Yeah. Really. <laughs> so yeah, that's interesting. So opening a door for us would be it's something that I. Have two-year-old can do easily, but a robot, it would be super complicated. Right? Yeah, it gets more a complicated. A door of a car, at least. Yeah, yeah. It, it gets complicated to, t- to define that path to a robot because we don't intuitively think that way. And so it's amazing that you're giving at least three sets of instructions to your robots, right? So the, it's the coding and, and I, the, the complicated math, right? Mm-hmm. But also it can read your gestures, right? Yeah. And it can also understand verbal commands, Right. Yeah. So this is important when you think about. Uh, often, what they'll talk about is social navigation or social autonomy, like how a robot's going to work in an environment. And think about the things that we do. If I'm going to walk up to you on a street and hand you a bag, then we're making eye contact. We are with subtle cues of our eyes, our head. Who's going to walk which way around people? Am I handing it to your right or your left hand? Uh, here, take this. I might give additional verbal commands like be careful. The bottom might fall out. Um, but you're also, you can tell when I'm letting go that you've got a hold of it. Like that handoff is complicated. Yeah, like, there's, yeah definitely. There's gestures, there's sensor cues, there's force data, and there's uh, verbal commands. And so a lot of our work at the University of Texas is creating something that we call Tomoto as our software that allows the robot to collect different input commands from all of these different modalities at the same time. And and this is asking, I'm asking for a friend here. Is <laughs> it is it the accent super important? <laughs> so I, <coughs> I, I did have a story on this one. It turns out that... Uh, Obviously, we don't do a lot of work in the natural language processing. That's not ours. But there's great work at Google. I mean, there's great work at Apple, and there's great work at uh, Amazon with the competing Cortanas and Alexas, the ones at Microsoft product. Uh, It was funny that since these are obviously international companies, these products tend to do very well with accents. So as long as you are using a product that has already been developed in this kind of global market we have, they tend to do very well. Uh, it was funny that one time uh, we were trying to get a robot to move, and uh, I had a couple of visiting scholars from Estonia, which is a relatively small country, and they speak Estonian, and their accent, to me at least, sounds eh, you know Eastern European mm-hmm. Russian. Uh, G- Google did very well understanding Hispanic accents, uh, even different ones, whether it was Argentina or Colombia or the or the Valley. Uh, it did very good even understanding someone from Russia, but it it acted like it couldn't understand these scholars from uh, Estonia, even though to us the accent was somewhere between Russian and Queen's English. So, and this is because just, I don't know. I, I'm guessing because there's only 3 million Estonian speakers in the world, and mm-hmm. maybe Google just hasn't invested as much time. Mm-hmm. And that is the sensitivity of the machine learning to the accent. We just don't see it because of all the good work they've already put in. Mm-hmm. So. Dr. Pryor, you mentioned Temodo. Mm-hmm. This um, first of all, where does the name come from? Um, so the, the name, those same visiting uh, scholars from Estonia. I, I got to give a huge shout out to the University of Tartu, as a uh, uh, excellent colleague when we develop a lot of this, and honestly, a very uh, underappreciated university on the global scheme. 
Uh, I'm there, sure they're listening right now. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I hope you've got many listeners in, in uh, Estonia. Estonia, big crowd. Definitely. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but um, the visiting scholar who first came to us, uh, Carl Kusume, uh, was in Japan and actually learned quite a bit of Japanese while he was there. And Tomoto is Japanese for at hand or uh, what we might call handy is mm -hmm. slang in, in America. And so we, we kind of picked that up. And then... Uh, because I was always nervous about, as a side story, you always see people are here about people getting the uh, Eastern, the uh, symbols from the East, Chinese and Japanese symbols, words on their on their body and tattoos, and they don't say what they think they are. Yeah. So I actually, when we figured out how to translate uh, Tomoto, we put it in Japanese, I would randomly show it to like get you different people it. from Japan to make sure that we weren't <laughs> saying something odd. <laughs> and I really liked that you tested Tomoto with on-site workers with no prior robotic experience as operators at all? Yeah. How did that go? I mean, that's the key here. If you're going to do supervised autonomy, the person who needs to be supervising the robot is not a roboticist. If the robot's going to be learning welding, the supervisor needs to be a welder. Mm -hmm. If the robot's going to be a radiation survey robot, then the supervisor needs to be a radiation technician. Uh, we were lucky enough at one point to take our robots up to the Portsmouth Gaseous Diffusion Plant in southern Ohio. It's not a place that many people have heard of, but back during the Cold War, it used, I think, uh, the word on the street was more power than New York City because it was where we were purifying uranium. Wow. Uh, we've now, we're tearing that building down, and it, the building is huge. I, I think I've heard it's 15, 16 football fields under roof. Uh, you, you come in one side of the building, you can't even see the other side. It's, it's crazy. And so you've got to survey and make sure it's completely clear. Uh, the United Steel Workers Union is the union behind the workers who work there. And so we took our uh, robot in. And part of us, we were honestly expecting some tension. We were expecting uh, union workers to, you know, have the, that it's going to take our job kind of attitude towards the robot. We didn't get that at all. Uh, in fact, they were like, you mean the robot's going to do the boring bits of the job so I can focus on the interesting parts? That's how they worked on the, yeah. yeah. And the fact that they were the ones that were going to be commanding the robot was huge too. So we did these demonstrations for uh, the, the, you know, the folks from DC came in and we had a couple days to train up the uh, uh, folks on how to use the robots. We thought we'd plan for everything because once you go up there, you don't have any Wi-Fi. We don't have many access to tools. It's a secure location. It's a nuclear facility. And we get in there and we've trained it to, to capture the gestures from the hand while one person, you can be working with the mouse with one hand and capturing the gestures with your left hand. And as soon as we sat down, the first worker immediately picked up the mouse and moved it from the right side of his computer to the left side. And we realized all of our work and gesture recognition wouldn't work now that the thumb was on the wrong side of the hand. And so we scrambled to hack a bunch of stuff to, to, <laughs> to make it work. We originally thought we were going to just have to teach him to hold his hand upside down. <laughs> no, I, I guess it's... But, but wow. we, we figured it out. <laughs> wow, that's so... But it's yeah, those little details. You have to think those, about everything, right? Yeah, yeah. We call those, you know, they're edge cases, and they're almost impossible to predict. In nuclear environments and space environments, you can predict them better. There's more control. But when you start getting into the military applications or oil and gas applications, you know, it's so hard to predict what all possible what all the possibilities are going to be. Yeah, but you have to be somehow prepared. I mean, it's it's crazy, the, the amount of situations you can run into, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, there's just, uh, you know, just imagine, you know, war, war fighting, you know, trying to use robots in there, just mm -hmm. the number of different contingencies that they come up with. You know, it was interesting that uh, 
you know, we were talking to some soldiers the other day and they point out just how often things are held together with duct tape and, and uh, just put together in crazy ways to make them work. And it's really hard for robots to think um, outside of the box the way a human would. That's going to be a real challenge. Yeah, and actually this, is, this brings something that, that you, that you um, mentioned before, that, it's, that you think that in order to, to take robots to the next step, they, they need to have day jobs? <laughs> yeah, so uh, a big sh thesis of my talk when I usually talk about robots is that robots do need day jobs. Uh, there's a, another nuclear facility outside of uh, Aiken, South Carolina, Savannah River National Labs. It's known because when spent uranium fuel is brought in from all over the world for long-term disposition, it comes into the Savannah River National Labs facility. They have a place there called H Canyon, which no human will ever go into. And when the fuel comes in, it's clad in stainless steel. And then to remove the stainless steel, they use nitric acid. And then they take the spent uranium fuel that's inside and they vitrify it, which means they make it into these glass cylinders that they can be stored forever. Uh, it's called, uh, and, and they, they do that whole process. And of course, the, the vent that comes out of that, um, facility is radioactive 40 mile per hour acidic vapor winds. Wow. And when they built that tunnel back in the 50s, the tunnel walls were 18 inches thick. Today, they're only 15 inches thick. Wow. Because the acid and everything has just messed them off and you got to get the, the stuff down. Now, one of the things that you go into this facility that's kind of fun is they bought a bunch of robots because, you know, something could go wrong and we need emergency response. Those robots sit over in a corner. They're 10 years old. They got excited about them for like the first two years and they trained with them, but now they just gather dust and they're dated. Like no one would ever use them. But we were developing a robot to go in and inspect this tunnel. So this robot would have a day job. It, you know, three, four times a year, it would have to go into the tunnel, drive up and down different parts of it, uh, inspect the walls, see, make sure nothing was going to collapse because, you know, that would be a, a bad situation. Uh, and you would have the operators at the plant would know how to use the robot. They would know how to read the data off the sensors. So now if something bad happens, then that robot would be available uh, to do that job. And isn't there an example from, <laughs> where was it that you, you mentioned it to yeah. me before? It was pretty yeah. funny. Yeah, I, I, I'm always glad that yeah, in these uh, talks you're, you're able to <laughs> uh, prod in the right direction. But of course, you know, the great example of where something did go wrong was Fukushima. Uh, in, in Japan, uh, the uh, horrible earthquake and tidal wave that or tsunami that happened. And of course, during the process of that, uh, uh, you know, the, one of the nuclear reactors was, was affected, um, fairly well contained in the long run, certain lessons learned about giving people the power to make choices on site. But um, the thing to really think about there from a robotics point of view is now in the process of cleaning that up, They've sent in something like 30, 31 robots uh, that are unique and often designed to do a specific task. And that's a challenge. For example, they had one robot that had to go in and do a radiation survey in the old control room. No human was going to go in there. To get to the control room, you had to go up a flight of stairs. And, you know, when you go up a flight of stairs, there's usually a landing halfway up. So they got the blueprints of the building. They built a mock of the, land, of the flight of stairs and the door. And then they built a robot that could make it up the, the flight of stairs, traverse across the landing, go up the next half flight, and then do the radiation survey in the room. They trained the 
the TEPCO, the Energy Utility Employees in Japan, to run the robot. And then they took the robot out to the actual facility to do the actual uh, survey. The robot got ha- up to the landing on the halfway up the flight of stairs, and it got stuck. And it turns out that the landing was shorter than what it was in the blueprints. Oh, man. And this wasn't Japan's fault. Yeah. You know, they, they realized a wall needed to be thicker, and so they shortened the landing. And then they recorded that change, and they put it in a filing cabinet like they were supposed to, which, of course, got destroyed by the tsunami. Huh. So how does that problem get fixed? And you, some would say you would never be able to see that coming. But if that robot had just been, been doing, working there. Yeah. Yeah. Just like, hey, you know, there are radiation technicians that go in and do um, uh, robot radiation surveys and nuclear reactors all the time. They're humans with an incredibly boring job because you're just going around with the Geiger counter waiting for it to click. And it never does because these emergencies are extremely rare. Um, if the robot had been doing that and then we needed to send the robot in there during an actual emergency, the people are trained how to use it. We know the robot can navigate the space and uh, we know it's functional. Perfect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dr. Pryor, we need to do a short break and All let's right. see how smooth this goes. I'm going <laughs> to test I'm going to test my new jingle from from last episode. Oh, so okay. remember you're listening to Science Stories. Science stories. Science stories. uprising of the late 90s there is no more unhappiness affirmative we no longer say yes instead we say affirmative yes affer- uh, affirmative unless we know the rather robot really well there is no more unethical treatment of the elephants well there's no more elephants so uh, but still it's good this is so good what are, what are we listening to Oh, this is a uh, flight of the Concords. So <laughs> that's so funny. They're the best. Yeah. Yeah. No, they're awesome, and you know, they, they kind of the the rugby tie in a little bit. Just New Zealand made me think of that. And if you tie in two of my big hobbies, rugby and robots, boom. <laughs> All right. So 
Dr. Pryor, I've been um, looking at your work as as and we talked a lot about your work before and I really like that you have a tank seal inspection robot on the process of getting a patent. That's affirmative. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I see that you're listed as one of the of the authors, but UT is the assignee. What does what does that mean and how oh. how is the patent uh, shared? Well, so it's uh When so many people contribute to developing a new capability or new invention, you know, it's it's hard to figure out how to make sure that everybody gets the credit and uh, the ability to use it where's where it's due. You know, um, so this this project was actually funded by Philip 66. So I'll give them a, a shout out here. Uh, the fact that they recognize that there were some real needs from a safety and environmental standpoint uh, should be mentioned. And then they funded the University of Texas. Uh, to support us to do that work. And it's really important at that point to call out just, you know, what a university helps with in this case. Because if I was my own little company, I'd have to find a place to work, I'd have to find a building, and I'd have to insure, I'd have to have payroll, I'd have to hire good people. Uh, it just, it's not me. It sounds like a drag. I know there are entrepreneurs out there, and, mm -hmm. and good luck to you. But at UT, uh, because of its reputation, we can bring in, you know, outstanding Uh, students and, and young researchers, and I've got access to excellent facilities and computers and and uh, mentors and publications and innovation experts and, and all this kind of stuff. And so uh, when Phillips contracts to UT, UT basically negotiates with them and the lawyers all get together. And at some point, UT owns the rights to the intellectual property. Now, when the patents come out, UT then, uh, if, Royal, if that invention is ever licensed, if that IP is ever licensed, then they share that royalty with the inventors. So I think that's a great acknowledgement of both what the university and the uh, inventors in terms of their own creative thought brought to bear on it. And then often there's a, you know, the company that originally funded it gets some benefit if the project is successful. They either get a royalty-free access to use it or Uh, in this case with Philips, if we ever spin off a company which we're trying to and start making money with it off those royalties, uh, Philips 66 can recoup their their costs that they put into it, which seems like a reasonable thing. So usually, I feel like the, the three parties can usually come to a situation that's a win-win-win, and, and UT generally does a good job with it, even if it is at times bureaucratically slow. <laughs> I don't want to get into anybody's business, but do you know any cases of professors that did the jump from from being a, from the academy creating a good robot and then actually launch it into the market? Yeah. There's there's several. Is, is that common? You don't have to name anybody, but is that common? Well, it's it's I, I'd say within the robotics at UT, uh, it is not uncommon. I'd say at least half of the uh, um, professors either started a company or support a student who wants to start a company. Uh, probably, I don't think I'm making anything out of the bags, probably the most successful one recently or exciting one is Diligent Robotics. Andrea Tomasa uh, spun out robots to kind of work in hospital settings. So that one's been successful. And in that case, she chose to uh, take a permanent take an, let's say, an inactive role at UT and focus on the company. A couple others that are worth mentioning are um, Harmonics, which is doing exoskeletons for rehabilitation. Or there's another company called Aptronic uh, that does uh, co-robots, robots that can work with humans 
at the same time. And in both those cases, the professor is still active at the university and has taken more of a science advisory role at, at the company. Uh, sometimes they tell him, like, I just want to be the professor who sits in the back and says the, the things that aren't supposed to be said. You know? <laughs> and so you, you see that range of, of, of options that can kind of That's exist. awesome, yeah. yeah. And Dr. Breyer, I'm going to move on to more relaxed questions now, okay? And, be, and, and people contribute. What, was this an interview? <laughs> oh, oh, no, no, no. Not at all. Um, so what has been some strange robots you have been asked to make? <laughs> it goes back to by... The one that always comes to mind is uh, I was approached by a furniture uh, maker. Uh, he d makes furniture for competitions and custom stuff. Lives out in the hill country. His name's Spider. So huge shout out to Spider if he happens to be. He seems like the kind of person who'd be listening to community radio in small town. Um, but he came to us with an idea of a, of a dining room table that starts out kind of as a folded up flower that then blooms out into a table. And so now we're getting more into like that. It's more of a machine than a robot, mm -hmm. but it's a really clever machine. Yeah, that's amazing. And so, um, but the great thing about working at UT is while that's not my specialty, the mechanisms to work that all out and have all the time, I knew exactly who to go to and was able to make that introduction and, and kind of work that out. So, so that one was pretty neat. Um, you know, the other one that uh, uh, was kind of crazy was there was a, a facility where they were working with explosives up in Amarillo, and they knew that they wanted to tear down this building, but they discovered that there might be some explosive residue crystallizing in the bottom of the concrete pad. So sending people out with jackhammers was not an option. So one of the crazier ideas that they approached us with was, can you make us a robotic jackhammer? <laughs> well, We ended up not going down that route. There were, there were better, sensible ways to solve the problem than that than sending out robotic jackhammers to be blown up by old explosives. explosives. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And Dr. Breyer, what would be your favorite robot if you had unlimited resources? I know this is a, it might be a stupid question, but what, 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 would, it, what would you do? Um, you know, if I had unlimited resources to, to make a robot, um, you know, you know, I'm honestly not sure I have a good answer to that question. Uh, one of the things that first kind of comes to mind is, um, and this isn't what I want to do because this is the most unsexy answer, but there's always talk of uh, putting a bunch of robots on rigs or making uh, a drilling rig be a robot. And something about a giant robot that does the drilling. It looks like an oil rig and it walks like they already have walking rigs and it can handle all of its own pipe and do all of that and work with its little minion robots, the cars that drive stuff in and out, or even if these could be the offshore oil platforms. Um, these, it sounds crazy and it even sounds kind of evil to talk about like total roboticizing the, the extraction of fossil fuels. But the great thing about a robot is you can just turn it off. And if our consumption goes down and this robot just drills slower or works slower, the robot's not going to care. Uh, the, um, that's way better than a bunch of people having to drive in and out and that kind of thing. So that'd be number one. And then the second one, of course, is Wally. -E. Like, who yeah. wouldn't want Wally? -E? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Dr. Breyer, what is the robotics field that is hottest right now? Is it warfare, medicine? Um, uh, there are so many. AI? 
there are so many spin outs, uh, and a lot of companies are coming to us. Uh, data analytics and AI is by far uh, one of the top hot button issues. Can you can you please tell us what? Can you please define or or, or give us a brief introduction to AI? What what do people mean when they <laughs> say AI? You know, that's a really good question, <laughs> and it is a buzzword without, in my opinion, a great definition. Ah, interesting. Um, artificial intelligence is kind of clear in the name that it's an intelligence that's artificial, but now you got to think about that word intelligence. I, I think that a, a phrase that I always am more careful to use than artificial intelligence is uh, machine learning, which is, can a machine learn to do something uh, that a human could? So how does a machine do that? It's math, it's pattern recognition, it's Uh, K-nearest neighbor algorithms, it's clustering algorithms, it's probabilities and statistics, like did this work or did it not? It's neural networks, which is, again, probability. And so by, I, I'm always very careful to use that phrase machine learning because I feel like it, it, it puts that concept in a more tangible space than this weird artificial intelligence AI uh, nomenclature that people use. Dr. Pryor, there is a, a commentary piece that was published in Nature in 2019 in which they, they raise concerns about robotics and the environmental sustainability of, of them for the future. And, and they, they, they throw some numbers that are interesting. For example, that 1% of the total global energy is uh, used by data centers. 3% of global emissions are due to internet use. Mm -hmm. And the questions they, they, they ask is, like, for example, if the material they use is recycled or recyclable, is it going to quickly become obsolete so we need an upgrade? And, and how, how do you think robotics is going to jump on that train about sustainability? On the one hand, it's going to exasperate the problem because we're already um, having this problem with computer resources, right, and batteries and things like that. And then we're also having to recycle cars, which are the actuators that move somebody around, even though in that case there are autonomous vehicles, robotic vehicles, but people still drive them. We already have a waste problem trying to figure out what to do with all these cars. We already have a waste problem uh, on what to do with all these computers. And robotics is that exact same problem just at the same time. We need to solve that problem, whether robotics exists or not. Mm -hmm. So in some sense, robotics might accelerate our need to solve it, but we still need to solve it. They don't create that problem. It's already here. The other thing I would mention there is that uh, robotics could, in fact, maybe be part of the solution, right? I was uh, going to ask you, yeah. Do you think they can help clean or something? Or Yeah. I mean, it, at this point, you know, one of the, the small little points, Wally's a great example, uh, it, it, you know, none of it is based in much technical fact, but it's a futuristic cartoon. <laughs> but he pulls out his solar panels and he just sits in the sun and he charges for a while. So, you know, our robots, when they're doing radiation survey, they monitor their own battery life. And when their battery gets low, they stop doing the tasks they're doing and they return to their charging station. So that's a, that's a key element of long-term autonomy is the ability for the robot to keep itself powered. As batteries get better, as solar gets better, as long-term autonomy gets better, like some of the things I'm talking about, then some of these truly dull jobs of sorting waste, of doing that, could possibly be handled by uh, robotic agents of the future. Now, can they be done in a net energy positive way? Maybe, yes, compared to humans doing that same work, particularly when you consider the fact that when humans do this work, 
they generate their own waste, mm-hmm. right? A human has to go to the site that takes fossil fuel. If they're going offshore, that's that. If they're working in a radiation environment, they're putting on PPE or personal protective mm-hmm. equipment. I learned that it's all discardable. Yeah, right? and all yeah. that has to be put in and then s- disposed of as low-level waste. They're trying to make a low-level radiation uh, disposal site in West Texas. And, you know, I understand that the city actually wants it. It's going to create jobs, but the rest of the areas around that in West Texas is fighting it because it's a it's a radiation disposal spot. And so um, the uh, opportunity of robots to maybe work for a very long period of time to eliminate those types of waste and also therefore improve the quality of life of the people who no longer have to do those drudgerous jobs would be a potential a good thing in the long run. I think you you mentioned it, or at least gave a hint of the answer, but what do you think is going to be, um, or what do you think it is robotics' next great challenge? What is the, the, the next great challenge for robotics? And it, is there any kind of problems that robotics will not be able to solve? Well, I mean, robotics right now, leaving aside, you know, what we're really working on now is a lot of it is the outdoor autonomy edge cases. Like, uh, um, you know, the... G- They often say in a project, the last 5% of the job is 90% of the work. Mm -hmm. And there's a great example of that, excuse me, with, uh, say, autonomous vehicles. Is that challenges that last bit. Uh, Robots get out on the, uh, autonomous vehicles get on the highway, they work very well. Uh, They started using Uber vehicles in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania for a while, and they weren't that successful. Uh, They were safe, they got people around, but where they ran into problems were... They had to interact with other human beings. Uh, other human beings begin to recognize, like, if you're coming up on a spot on a highway where you're going to merge and you're counting on someone to be nice, yeah. and you see one of those robotic vehicles yeah. up there, cut it off. Yeah. It's not going to hit you. He, he and if everybody that. starts cutting that robot off, everybody behind the robot vehicle is now upset. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's an edge case. Uh, another one is kind of the unique thing that happens. I don't know if you've ever been in Pittsburgh uh, or Philadelphia, but they have a weird thing that they do that when the light turns green, the first car that wants to take a left gets to go first. Huh. It's just a community standard. It's it's an unwritten rule. So they program the robot to do that, but then everybody else realized they could just keep going if it was an autonomous vehicle at the front. The other thing, and that robot's not going to pull out. So they ended up like, and now that edge case is different than the one you would see here in uh, um, Texas. So... Really, one of the great challenges is that last 5% uh, and, and making that happen. A couple other sort of challenge areas uh, that, that people do think about is batteries. It's batteries, batteries, and batteries. Yeah, autonomy. Yeah, a typical UAV can only fly for 10, 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just, uh, out at Mars Amazon conference, the guy brought out the a uh, flying machine where he could put the thrusters on his hands and fly around those last four minutes, right? Wow. Uh, ground vehicles can last 10, 20 hours, but um, as soon as you put two arms on the ground vehicle, it only lasts 45 minutes. So how can you have long-term autonomy if those are the kind of things? The spot mini robots that are in Boston Dynamics that are making uh, so much attention these days, those last less than an hour. Uh, before they have to go and recharge themselves. So, yeah, you, you solve the battery problem, and, and you solve it do a lot for robotics and the rest of the world. Dr. Pryor, we, we're going to do another short break. No problem. And then we'll come back with more... Science stories. <laughs> Science stories. Science stories. Science stories. 
Science stories. Science stories. What is this song? What are we listening to? <laughs> You're listening to Jed the Humanoid. It, it's a it's a sad song, so it's not a great picker up for for a Friday afternoon. It's okay, but um, I think it does show kind of that nice intersection where we replace our phone every six months, seven months. It's I mean it's in our hand. Our our, our, our phones are with us all the time they're almost our best bud right <laughs> you know and then oh, a new one comes out and it just gets thrown in a drawer and that's it if we start making humanoids what happens when that one you bought two years ago is out of date and uh, uh this is a nice intersection of where that friendship with an anthropomorphic person who might be a, a dated technology starts to come into play so it's a it's a good reminder that you know, in a throwaway society, what's going to happen if these humanoids ever actually become a thing? Okay, Dr. Pryor, I have to ask you. Ina, I have to ask you this question because if not, <laughs> yeah. Um, imagine in an apocalyptic future, right? If there's a risk of machines or robots, in this case robots, controlling humans, what would they want? What what resource? Or what would they want? What what resource would they want to <laughs> monopolize? Or or what? Yeah, what would be their point? Well, yeah, I mean, for the record, I don't see it happening. But uh, to go through the mental exercise, if indeed artificial intelligence ever comes across, then let's assume that. Um, whatever this intelligent being wants is going to be the same thing we want, which is to survive and procreate, right? And so are humans useful for the future evil robots to survive and procreate? Then they'll keep us around. And if we're not, they won't. <laughs> Would they keep us around just to, to click in the I am not a robot <laughs> captcha in, in, in the website? They might. They might need a... Well, at that point, they won't even know what red lights are to pick out in the you know the little pictures. Does, so. does that even work? What's the point of that? Like, yeah, yeah, so the... Uh, <laughs> There, there are ways around it at all times, but I think people don't realize just how much is going on behind the scenes in those things. For example, when you click on the I am not a robot, it's not simply that you found the button that said I'm not a robot. They're also pretty happy to know that your motion of your mouse to get to that button was more human than uh, a robot, which might try to move in a straight line or at a constant velocity or something like that. So uh, they're, they're, they're testing more than just our ability to read three words so they actu words. it actually works <laughs> generally yeah it's 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 a little harder for uh robots to to fake that 
but not because they can't press the button, but because they don't press it with the inconsistently irregularity and randomness of a human. That's amazing. Yeah. I, al- I always thought, okay. It, it is funny though. Like one of the things I've got a, I'm teaching a class in Python this semester and they wanted to uh, do uh, a vision project. So they were going to have a, a camera look down and see a signature and then have a little robot, an XY pad with a pen, copy the, the signature. And I was like, that's cool and all. But what I want to see is I want to see you change the signature just a little bit so it doesn't, so it looks like it's the same person's signature, but it's not that exact same signature. Can you do that? And then we started trying to brainstorm up actually how to do that. It's actually not easy. <laughs> you know, like you can't just randomly rearrange the the pixels. That won't work. It won't look like a human did it. You could do some stuff with like trying to estimate curves and, and then tweak some parameters, but it's not going to be simple. So, so it's, it's difficult for even in simple tasks like that for a computer to act like a human. Dr. Pryor, why is Wally such a great movie? Uh, well, one, it's a great movie. Mm-hmm. It's uh, got the love angle and all that. It's got the environmental thing. But I got excited watching it at the beginning because if we're trying to get towards the supervised autonomy and autonomous robots, then I just, you know, Wally, yeah, because they anthropomorphized him, he got bored. But he woke up, he knew what his next task was, he went and did the next task, and then he knew when to recharge, he knew where to go at night. Like, that initial five, ten minutes of Wally, where, where Wally's out doing his thing, is probably where we could see robots get to, I think, is they've got a task, and they go do it, and they can handle edge cases, and they're happy to go back and charge, and they know how to repair you know, themselves or know where to go when they're broken, All that kind of stuff. You know, of course, him then going back and watching VHS tapes of old musicals and stuff is probably not in the works, but <laughs> you know, why not? <laughs> yeah. What is what is another science fiction movie you would you like? So uh, you know, the science fiction movies I always feel like the, the way to gauge whether you really like a movie is if it's on TV and then you just know you're watching it. You cannot it. switch it. Yeah. You're just going to do that. And I, not to be too cliche, but, you know, the Starship Troopers and the Matrix are the science fiction movies that uh, I, I tend to, to fall into there, uh, but not about, you know, robots per se. So. And what would be a movie that it's realistic regarding robots? Um, I definitely Wally, I thought was a good one. Uh, there was... Uh, Ex Machina, if I'm saying that right, was another one that I thought um, really has some nice lessons because it, it goes back to that Jetty, the humanoid uh, thing. You know, there's going to be um, things are going to come out of date. So if these things do become artificial intelligence, then, you know, how are we going to treat them? I think is an, um, an interesting thing from a movie point of view. The dating of technology, even when that technology is really sophisticated, is going to be interesting. But the other thing it does is our phones already isolate us from one another. We walk around staring at our screens. God forbid that we can live with, like, four robots that take care of our every need. Uh, and you don't watch the movie with your kids. <laughs> uh, uh How, how is that going to make us as a society? And that movie really captured that awkwardness when humans actually get together you know, yeah. and what that's all going to be about. So uh, it's definitely worth thinking about technology in, gen- in general uh, uh, and what that movie says, not just robots. Um, one last, I guess, I, th- I guess this is all for, for all kinds of technologies, but is there any 
way to prevent robots from becoming a weapon or some sort of ar they already are weapons they already are weapons yeah, yeah. so I, I, yeah it's one of those um you know so at one point i remember even gosh it was probably 20 years ago when iron man came out i gave a talk and someone said so when is the first time the robot is going to uh shoot somebody without a human in the loop and at that point it had already happened there were defense huh. systems on navy boats that were designed to shoot down cruise missiles And there's not much difference between a cruise missile and someone in a kamikaze jet, right? So with the, the angles that the – with everything that would have to happen with a human in the loop, the kamikaze would win. So should that ship be allowed to defend itself? And the answer there was yes. And there's been, you know, some, some horrible examples of things going wrong. I think in South Africa there was a, a, a robotic machine gun that – you know, went awry, and I try to find that story because I don't remember the uh, the details of it. But recognizing that new technology of any sort, even going back to where it's fire, and we use it to sterilize uh, uh, wounds, or we put it on an arrow and burn down someone's house down, uh, is going to be a policy choice with the technology coming. And I certainly hope that we have the courage of our convictions at a leadership level to make the right policy choices here. But with robots' potential to also help us, The idea of not having them out there is really not a choice either because we'd be making a choice to not make our world safer by not putting them out there for risk that they'll be used in, in, you know, in war. We just have to make a choice not to do that as, as a community, as, as, as a government, as a, as a world. So. Dr. Breyer, I know you're heavily involved with the Austin Hans Rugby Club. <laughs> This is a really fast-growing sport in, in the country. What, what can you tell us about rugby? And, and yeah. oh, I absolutely love it. It's worth pointing out that uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I discovered rugby when I was in engineering at uh, Southern Methodist University. And as a team sport, it's what kept me fit. I'm no good at going to the gym unless I know uh, that on Saturday I'm going to disappoint my teammates by being out of shape, right? And so it, it really helped me through that. It gave me that nice outlet. Uh, it, it was like walking into an instant set of friends. And everywhere I moved in the country, it, it really felt like that. Even when I came back and took the job at the robotics research group when I came to grad school in Austin, uh, I met a, a, my, one of my best friends, Ed, uh, at the time, who was interviewing for the same job. And I was able to bring him out to my second practice, already bringing in a recruit. And you know, <laughs> that immediately moved me to the top because we needed to get there. Um, I never would have imagined that I would have spent 20 years playing rugby, having it keep me in shape, then referee for a few more years, and now I'm coaching my 11-year-old daughter who's playing rugby. So it's been a huge part of my life. Uh, it has uh, been a huge outlet for me. It's been a really nice balance to, to uh, the nerdiness of robotics and a, and a workaholic nature that that, that kind of uh, puts in me because I like my job. And uh, cannot talk more strongly about how important rugby has been to me, both for my health and for my mental well-being. So. That's amazing. Is there any overlap between rugby and your work? <laughs> Do you think, what, what if the rugby club asks you to make a robot? So the common joke is, uh, anytime I go out to the bar, is uh, uh, I, they'll say Dr. Reverend, because I've also married a few people on the team. Uh, when are you going to bring us our sex bot? <laughs> And I will always reply, it's still in testing. Uh, there are no sex bots at this point, for the record. Um, if I was to make a robot for the team, it probably would not be a sex bot. I don't think that would be good for the mental well-being of the club. 
I would help us get some lawnmowers that could take care of that business on their own. Dr. Breyer, when you, when you ask me, and, and when I ask you to come on the show and you ask me what this podcast was about mm -hmm. or what this show was about, I told you that I wanted to show that scientists are human too, in the sense that they're not, not that they're super intelligent or, or anything like that, they have problems, that they have anecdotes, they have stories, they have a life outside science. And hopefully that would attract people to science, knowing that scientists are not superhumans. They're just normal people that are interested in some particular problem and they just work towards it. And I think today you, you, you were a great, a great example of that. And, and, and you're also a big, um, you're also really behind not putting scientists on pedestals, yeah. right? No, it's huge. I'll, I'll, I'll let you in on a little secret. I bet you 80% of the people I've interacted at at University of Texas, which is a top, I think they're number six in the nation right now, uh, have imposter syndrome. Like they wonder if they belong and that insecurity might be part of what drives them. But that is, that is common and it exists. And my group is most successful when they're able to communicate to each other about what they get or don't get. Uh, when they're lost or when they're not, and figuring out little tidbits. And I think that's, that's really important. So I try really hard when I give lectures and talk about uh, other people who are working in the robotics environment that, that the struggle and the goofy mistakes are real. Uh, Boston Dynamics makes the spot robot a quadruped. It's one of my favorite. You've all seen all the amazing videos out there. But I will tell you that uh, when Mark Raybert, the, the, the brilliant man that, that made those robots, comes around and talks to other universities, he brings his blooper reel, and we see the mistakes, and we know that they're mistakes, and we know that, that every video has 33 takes and tons of man hours and mistakes and fixing the mistakes behind it, and that's, that's true everywhere. Dr. Breyer, thank you so much for, for coming in today. I had a really good time. Did you have a good time? I had a grand time. Anytime I can come down to San Marcos, especially on a Friday afternoon when it's beautiful, very happy. So, Thank you so much. Thank cool. you so much for being part of Science Stories. No problem. Thank you. Wow.